Hello and welcome to The Spectator's Books Podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week I'm pleased to be joined by Richard Holloway, the former Bishop of Edinburgh and now author of, well he's author of several books, but the latest is Waiting for the Last Bus, Reflections on Life and Death. Richard, welcome. It's a very winningly jocular title for quite a serious book in some ways. Mm-hmm. What made you want to take that approach? Well, I think there's an ancient tradition of joking about death. And I suppose it's one of the ways that we handle it. And there's a sense of weight. I mean, it, the Old Testament chariots came. It was a chariot that took Elijah up. So there, there's a tradition of the vehicle being the kind of final thing that you you do or get into or step into. And I didn't have the title when I started writing the book. It began life as a series of those Radio 4 after the one o'clock news essays. And it was called Three Score Years and Ten, a very unimaginative title, which is the biblical norm, the biblical limit, which I way outdistanced. You would have done by the time you made those broadcasts. Yes, indeed. And Three Score Years and Ten is not exactly a gripping title. So when... They asked me to work it up into a book and extend it. That's the title that came to me. It was originally going to be called The Last Bus, and then I tweaked it to Waiting for the Last Bus. And the original subtitle was A Memoir of Death, because there's a lot of my memory of death in the book. I mean, I was a priest for over 40 years, sitting at the bedsides doing burials and all of that. But they thought that was a slight turn-off of a subtitle, so we came up with Reflections on Life and Death. So it's an old man looking back and looking forward and hoping the bus hasn't left the depot yet. And it's quite a personal book, as you say. Was there a sort of point at which, or is there a point at which, one suddenly does start thinking much more about death? I mean, is it when you pass three score years and ten? I mean, many of us, as you write in the book, spend a lot of time fending off that thought, that reckoning, that idea. Did you sort of wake up on the morning of your 71st birthday saying, this is something I need to think about? I think probably the the first thing that hit me was the sense of my body changing and ageing. I talk about the time I realised I was was sprouting coloured spots in my face, they call lipofuscin, and there have been men in your epidermis that get rid of all of this stuff, and they go on strike as you get older, and I started noticing. Oddly enough, at the Edinburgh International Book Festival a few years ago, they employed a, a ruthlessly cruel camera system to photograph the authors, and when my picture went up Charlotte Square at the weekend, I saw blotches on my face called age spots, and I realised that my skin was giving up, and these funny things were appearing on it like stains on an old dike. And you get stiffer as you get older. I I try to work against that kind of stuff. I've always kept fit. I always walk. But I do notice I'm not as good at remembering names and things like that. So you actually begin to realise that you're wearing out, that the old body has a finite life. And I noticed that it was beginning to fade a bit. But I've also, in a sense, been in the business of death because priests spend a lot of time with people who are dying, uh, with people who've died, uh, do a lot of funerals and things. So I had a lot of accumulated experience. And I think I've got a kind of melancholy temperament. I've always been a bit obsessed by the passing of time, the fact that everything is ending, everything is shuttling into the past. I read a lot of history, biography, letters, that kind of thing. So I think I've always had a bit of a tendency to muse about these things. And I do a lot of thinking of that kind of 
way when I'm on the hill. So I think I probably was professionally and psychologically um, programmed to do this kind of stuff. Yeah. A lot of us aren't. And one of the burdens of your book, particularly early on, is that in the cultures of the past, we've tended to lay much more emphasis, you know, from Holbein's anamorphic skull backwards and forwards <laughs> mm-hmm. on the memento mori, on the idea that, you know, in life we're in death and so forth. Why do you think our culture is so death-averse that we, we're encouraged not to think about it, that when people die, the body is put somewhere else, you know, people die out of public sight? I, th- I think two things are going on. I think part of it is the death of religion in our culture, because religion was one, Christianity in particular, the religion I know best, was good at keeping our mortality in front of us. You heard a lot about it if you went to church, if you heard the great scriptures, in the midst of life we are in death. There were whole, I mean, ars moriendi, the, you know, the art of dying, it was kept in front of you, partly because in certain versions of religion it was a, a momentous moment. If you got it wrong, uh, you could have a very terrible afterlife. So there was a sense in which all religions, because um, the Eastern religions, the idea of karma and reincarnation, all of these religions put a kind of focus on living in a way that might determine what happened after death. And I think that made us live more seriously And with the fading of religion and with the dominance of medical science, I think that it's gone into reverse. We're in a kind of flight from death. One of the things that actually kind of worries me about getting old is that doctors have a kind of hatred of death and and many of them keep us alive too long, I think. I don't want to get too deeply into this particular issue, but I think that, that we live in a society where we don't see people dying at home, so we're not familiar with it, it's not domesticated, it's been medicalised, we'll die in hospital. Very often wired up to machines so you can't get into the bed and cuddle the dying person. And of course there's now this extraordinary move, mainly in the States, to outlaw death, to outdistance death, uh, uh, to have your body frozen against the day when you can be cryonically resurrected. Yes, the first thing is you talk about almost a kind of secular eschatology yeah, overtaking yeah. the religious one. Yeah, that... yeah. I mean, it is, it is profound. I mean, there are three agencies, two in the States and one in Russia. They'll freeze your whole body for $200,000, if you just want your head frozen and you come back in some kind of robotic existence, that's only $40,000. And they suspend you in a vat of ice and then they'll kind of scientifically resurrect you. A hundred years hence, can you imagine what that's going to be like? Hence all these zombie movies, I think. So, so there is a sense in which I think in our culture we don't see death that death is offending more and more people. How dare I die? How dare the universe decree that, that I can't go on forever? And I think, therefore, it's a very difficult subject to talk about in any kind of positive, winning way. Actually, a friend of mine who's Scottish like you said that she described her mother dying and says her mother was black-affronted. How much do you think the fear of death... I mean, you describe yourself as being without fear, I think, in this book. And mm-hmm. you say you're not afraid of dying... But a lot of people know Julian Barnes. Who oh, yes, book, wrote a book about it. Yeah. Wrote a book about it. He mm-hmm. says that he describes the fear of death as rational. Mm-hmm. Would you contest that? I mean, there is an argument, presumably, the fear of death is adaptive in mm-hmm. some sense, mm-hmm. in evolutionary mm-hmm. terms. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't argue with any person's attitude to death. I don't think it's a subject that should prompt disagreement. I mean, I think if your experience 
of dying is one of dread. That's what you're experiencing. I think that it's sad if that's the way it goes. He's actually very interesting because he says there are four categories. There are those who have faith and have no fear of death. There are those who have no faith and no fear of death. There are those who have fear and also a fear of death, those with no fear. And he says they're the ones up shit creep because you know, they, they've nothing they can at no least rely on. Fear, N- yes. No faith and fear. I interviewed him at the Edinburgh Book Festival a few years ago, and he was very funny on the subject. Um, his brother was a rationalist, a philosopher, who yeah. tried to argue him out of his fear. I suspect there may be something ontological about it. I mean, maybe being resents non-being in some way. There is a kind of deep... And we, f- we would fight, we would struggle against drowning, we would struggle out of situations that, that... So I think there's something profoundly existential about it. But I think that there are some people, they don't have any hope for anything after death, they don't like maybe the thought of dying, they certainly don't want to die miserably, painfully, lonely. But there are some people who seem to lack that. I'm one so far... It may be that I will find on my deathbed that I collapse into terror. I hope not, and I don't expect it to happen. And were it to happen, I hope my friends would say courage, because I think that actually fortitude is the lesson that death teaches, and and it's the basic virtue. Without courage, no other virtue is likely to get a look in. So I think death can be a good teacher, and I think that the old religious traditions of actually remembering that we are being towards death, as Heidegger puts it, we're always old enough to die. All of that, I think, can add a savour to your living. I think any avoidance, any denial of an absolute reality that's going to hit you, I think is unhealthy. And I think that our society is a bit unhealthy healthy in this attitude towards death. So do you think that were we not to be in this mortal situation we're in, we'd have the beautiful music and art and poetry that you describe? I mean, if we lived forever, would we have lousy music? It's a great question, isn't it? Is it because we have but a short time? If we had infinite life, would we get round to anything? Because... It could always be we could do it in 500 years. I suspect there may well be people who are just intrinsically given to represent the world. I mean, Arthur Danto, the American philosopher I'm fond of, described the human as an ends representans, a being that represents the world back to itself. You hear people talking in the bus going home from work about the day they've had. And I think we hear children playing. We, we just can't not represent this amazing experience we're having. I don't think the animals do it to the same extent. It's something that's happened in our brain. And I think death can be a prompt to it because you know that you have but one time to achieve all these things, uh, to get it down. But that's why the descriptions of heaven don't tempt me at all because the idea of endlessness I find a bit paralysing, actually. Actually, funny enough, Julian Barnes, who you mentioned, has that wonderful bit in History of the World in Ten and a Half Chapters where he imagines a sort of version of heaven and everybody voluntarily checks out of it at some point. Yes, 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 you would, you would. I, yeah, especially if it's a an eternal church service. I mean, I've done eternal church services all my life. And a lot of the prospectuses sound a bit like that. Unless, of course, you get blown out like a candle 
in, in the kind of Eastern tradition. I quite like that. I quite like some of the ideas of karma because I think we do make our futures by the way we live and we can hand on difficult futures to the people who survive us. So I like to squeeze the juice, the riches out of religious traditions but not take them literally. Well, that's something that obviously you're, in a sense, you know, you were famous for or are famous for having been a bit Church of England bishop who lost his faith. And so, you know, you, you're able to see that Julian Barnes is four groups from both sides. Mm-hmm. When, as it were, you lost your faith, is that something that happens all at once or does it happen gradually? You see, I would reject that way of putting it. I mean, I know that's the way it was expressed, losing your faith. I mean, if you become persuaded that elements of things that you believed are no longer honest or kind even, have you lost something rather than gained a different... I mean, I... I'm uncertain. My fundamental response to most things, the older I get, is one of creative uncertainty. If we can't be sure about Brexit, how the hell can we be sure about God? Uh, Europe we have seen, God we have not seen. So I think that a certain kind of modesty and humility, and my fallout with the church was more over its ethics than over it, the way it handled abstract things like mythology and doctrine. It was its cruelty towards women and towards gay people. Uh, And it seems to me that if you have a faith system that makes you cruel, there's something wrong with it. And I think by its fruits you know it. And I just had had enough and I walked away. I now, uh, I would describe myself as an agnostic Christian or a Christian agnostic. You say Uh, in the book, you know, I am still a religious man. Yes, I, I, I go to church. I confess my sins. I just, I find I'm awake in an extraordinary universe that doesn't explain itself. It may be self-creating and self-destroying. I don't know. There may be some great transcendent agency behind it, but I cannot demonstrate it. So I'm held, and uh, it's a very common thing in Scotland, what they call the Caledonian anti-Zizigy, the existence of competing or opposing polarities in the same entity, the yes and the no. There may well be an ultimately transcendent meaning. There may not be. I feel the pain of both. And so I, I kind of resist and resile against, oh, that he's the bishop that lost his faith. And I've had quite a lot of flack from that. Uh, I you lost. Get it from both sides, actually, yeah. Oh, yes. I get it from humanists. My God, I had a debate with with the the CEO of the British Humanist Association, their Archbishop, and he he wouldn't have it. I mean, I had to be either in or out. I said, tough. I'm both. <laughs> but you also write. I mean, you write very perceptively and rather movingly about religion, but you know, from a point of view where you can critique it in a sort of anthropological way here, and you say, you know, it's a response to these historical currents and to these psychological and human anxieties. Do you think that the experience of leaving the church has allowed you to understand religion better? Or do you think it's, in a sense, made it harder for you to inhabit it from the inside? I think both. I mean, I am... I'm, un- I'm uncomfortable where- wherever I am. When I was out, I was uncomfortable. I'm now back on the edge and I'm equally uncomfortable. But I'd rather be uncomfortably on the edge than completely outside. I think it's an intrinsically impossible subject. With our humanity comes this questioning. I mean, who are we? Where are we going? Where do we come from? I mean, Gauguin's famous questions on his great painting. We are self-reflective creatures and our existence is of interest to ourselves. The existence of the universe, the being of being, is of interest to ourselves. And I think that that makes us all intrinsically religious people. We all, uh, and we all posit these answers, whether our faith is one 
a kind of nihilistic faith that there's nothing else to it, which is still a faith because you cannot prove a negative proposition, a positive ne negative proposition. You cannot prove that God is not any more than I can prove that God is. So we're held in this kind of tension. But I love the way religions wrestle with these things, and I think that I see them now as works of art, works of human imagination. But we've learned most about how to be good humans from our imagination, and we've learned most about how to be horrible humans from our imagination. And you've got both of these polarities in religion. So I will. the story of Peter actually. You know, who denied Christ three times. But oh. what I hadn't known is, is the extraordinarily moving after story. Oh, God, I love that story because I kind of identify with Peter as a kind of failed apostle. He didn't know he was going to desert Jesus. I mean, this is the amazing thing about human nature. You don't really know who you are until the circumstances bring it out. And he didn't know until that moment in the courtyard that he was a coward That because he thought he was a big, strong guy. He was going to die for Jesus. He finds himself denying Jesus three times. And I quote in the book, a lovely, lovely legend about Peter, a denier and escaper until the very end of his days, never really got it right. And the, the lovely story is that um, at the fire of Rome, when Nero was persecuting Christians and blaming them for the fire he'd started, and Peter goes on the run again, he's in Rome. We know he died in Rome, it may be legendary. He's leaving Rome again, and he meets Jesus coming back on the Via Appia. He meets Jesus coming back into Rome, and and he says, Quo vadis, Domini? Where are you going, Lord? And he says, I'm going into Rome to be crucified again. And I cry thinking about it. And this time, the old betrayer turns around and goes back to his own death. It's unhistorical, but it's true. There is a kind of truth in these stories, because I think that a lot of people do find a kind of courage at the end that escaped them in their lives. And I love that about the New Testament, that it doesn't big Peter up. I mean, it shows, you know, what a monstrous of cowardice he was, and yet that's the lovable thing about his humanity. And that's what keeps me in religion. These stories tap into our own vulnerability, our own weaknesses, our own cruelties. And I think people that dismiss religion contemptuously miss all of that sympathy and pity. And it's what I think makes humanism a kind of religion as well, because the, the cruel religions are always dismissive of people whose religion they disapprove of. And I think that, God, I'm beginning to sound like Pollyanna, but by God, we need more kindness in our world, don't we? Yeah. We need more of the ability, if not to agree with, but maybe to understand and sympathize with why you you need the things to believe in that you do and they maybe keep you. And I, So I've reached that stage when I don't mind what you believe if it doesn't make you cruel. Well, you, you quote frequently in the book, and it's obviously a touchstone for you, Philip Larkin. I love Larkin. That, you know, and yet I sense you differ a little, because for him, obviously, religion, though he says it in a slightly ironised way, is that vast moth-eaten musical portrayal. Yeah, he tried created it. to pretend yeah, we never yeah, died. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, do you feel a kinship with Larkin, or do you feel you, you part ways from him? I mean, obviously, on the question of fear of death. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All sorts of things. I mean, I love him because, like me, he was obsessed with the passing of time. A lot of great artists are. Uh, they're mourning all the time, and I love that about Larkin. I quote quite a lot of him 
And there's that poem about the photograph album when his heart is wrung by the fact that I know picture she's now out of date in it. It's the passingness of things that I love, love in Larkin. He had a terrible terror of death. He had a very unhappy death, and I, I mourn that in him. But I think there was something wistful and searching about Larkin, hence his inability to settle down with anyone. I'd quite like to have met Larkin. He had an ugly side to him. I think probably brought out a bit by Kingsley Amos, but I think there was also a wistful side to him and a lonely boy in many ways. But you can't write that penetrating, wistful poetry that he did without having, to some extent, the soul of a priest and you know the the, the sense of the mystery of life, trying to mediate some meaning out of it, and he not squeezing any meaning out of it and dying in a kind of biblical despair almost. Cheery. <laughs> I wasn't cheery. He wasn't your man yeah, for cheer. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, now, as you rightly say, people are always trying to slot you into one side or the other, but there is one thing that seems to me to be a slightly binary question is, you know, do you believe there's a hereafter? And you're quite explicit in this book that you don't. I wonder, did you, during the time that you were <clears> religious, <throat> and, and was that something that went instantly... Yeah, but even that, I don't expect it, and nor do I want it, actually. But I cannot know. I might be pleasantly or unpleasantly surprised. I don't see how we can know. But there was a particular moment. I was walking down a hill in the Pentlands and realised halfway down that I no longer expected or wanted life after death. And in many ways, it heartened me because I think that increasingly the best use of religion is to improve life on this side of death and leave what happens beyond death to itself, to whatever the ultimate reality is. And I think it's a, you can get a lot out of religion that helps you live well in this, this life, but your motive is no longer to get a good billet. And therefore, I think in some ways, neither expecting nor desiring life after death means that your motivation for trying to live as good a life as you can has a greater purity about it because it's not a kind of insurance policy. And let's face it, a lot of religious ethics have been an insurance policy I mean, just to keep you out of trouble. So in a sense, it means you haven't actually been being trying to be good for its own sake, you've been trying to be good for other reasons. Yes, and even yeah, 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 I think yeah, believers yeah, yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. Would... And the, anyway, Jesus said more. Jesus says the same thing. The great parable of the sheep and the goats in Matthew twenty-five is precisely about this. It was the people that dismissed the idea of reward and eternity, but who gave the cup of cold water, who visited the prisoner, who clothed the naked. They were the ones that were put on the right hand of the side of God and the day of judgment, whereas the ones that said, Lord, Lord, and ignored all those things, they're the ones that don't get in. So I think that there is biblical precedent for trying to lead a good life as kindly a life, as much of a, a life of serving others as you can, not because you're wanting to get brownie points on the other side, but because it's a good thing to do. And it makes everyone happier anyway. And I think that most religious people realise that in their heart of hearts. I think in that respect they're probably rather different from medieval Christians. Yes, you know, yeah. I don't think, I don't think contemporary Christianity hammer. I mean, I think it's embarrassed by hell and they endlessly refine what they mean by it. Uh, and theologians will say, yes, hell exists, but there's no one in it, so what the hell is it about then? Can I ask just to come back to this? I was kind of slightly gripped by your... You know, you've walked up a hill in Pentland and you're coming back down it. Mm -hmm. Can you remember whether there was something that triggered that? Some, I mean, you know, you 
ran out of Kendall mint cake or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I had my wee dog with me. Uh, by the way, um, you, you've you got the bit of the book where she's still alive. She died as the book was going through the copy editing stage. So there's a page in the book you haven't read about the death of Daisy, but we won't go there because I'll cry thinking about it. I'm very sorry um, to hear that. Yeah, yeah. No, one of the things I've wasted in my life that I spent a lot of it in my head, even on the hills. I've walked hills for years, walked thousands of miles in hills, and I've only been walking inside my own head. I must have been resting with myself about this. And I suddenly realised, because I remember as a young priest being in a state of pain about the possibility of there not being life after death. And of course, if you're ministering to the dying, especially the young dying, it is horrible. If you're counselling an 11-year-old girl who's dying of leukaemia, who's worried that her parents will forget about her, and you find yourself saying these comforting things, they're not true, they're not lies, they're a kind of consolatory fiction. And so I've wrestled with all of that. I quote an amazing novel, The Last of the Just, by Andrew Schwartzbach, the greatest Holocaust novel. Um, Ernie is in a boxcar on the way to Auschwitz, filled with dead and dying children, and he starts telling them the story that they're going to Jerusalem and they'll meet their parents again and they'll never be cold again, and they start chiming in, and the woman in the boxcar shakes his hand and says, you know that's not true, and he says, woman, there is no room for truth here. And I had a debate with Richard Dawkins at the Edinburgh Science Festival a few years ago. And I said, what, Richard, what would you have done? He said, the same. Yeah. There is no room for truth here. Uh, the truth is the consolation. And so I've spent a lot of time with this, but it just came to me, and it was about 10 years ago, walking down Scald Law, that I realised that I no longer had a desire for or an expectation of, of life after death. This was it for me. But of course, I don't know. I cannot know. I've had mild experience of psychic stuff, of people who claim to have been in touch. I've had to deal with haunted people, with haunted rooms. So I realize it's a weirder universe than an absolute empiricist would, would realize. But I kind of expect there to be no there there after death. I kind of hope I'm alert enough at the time to notice what's happening. That's why I don't want to die too medicalised to death. I don't want to die in agony, and you can be cunningly uh, drugged in ways that keep you... A bit. I, I love the fact that Freud wanted to keep his consciousness going. He had a very painful cancer of the jaw. I, I like that kind of heroism towards the death, because I'd quite like to experience the experience, if it's an experience. Yes, which we can't but unfortunately, I wouldn't yet. be able to come back and tell you, Sam. No, no. Well, you might be able to through automatic writing. <laughs> <laughs> you talk about ministering to the dying while you're yourself experiencing doubts, and you say, actually, it becomes irrelevant. Yeah, yeah. You know, that yeah. you could as well yeah. be a, you know, utterly signed-up believer mm. and a mm. you know, complete agnostic. And, mm. You know, is that just the singularity of the emotional experience that crunches those things down? You don't want to get in the way of the need of the person. And a great friend of mine who'd been my chaplain when I was bishop died in a kind of an unhappy way. And I remember going to his room. He had a, a flat high up in Edinburgh, Elm Row, and going up there and his pals were all assembled a gay man, and I remember giving him the laying on of hands, giving him elements of the, the kind of final blessings that you give, in tears, loving him, meaning it and not meaning it. 
So let's not be brutally tidy about these things. I mean, being human is very complicated. I mean, Louis McNeese, I love him saying that the world is incorrigibly plural. Uh, and I meant it, but I doubted it. But it was what he needed. I'd like to end by just asking you about a, a moment that seems almost sort of serio-comic, which is you got a phone call from somebody fact-checking your obituary. Yes, oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I did, I did. Mm-hmm. Is this a habitual thing obituaries do? I mean, did I, I, you, we got a bit taken aback. I mean, it's only happened to me once. I knew the guy as it was. I won't name the newspaper, but it's published down here. And he, and he was very apologetic, and he said that they put them on what they call the morgue, and he'd been asked to do my obituary, and he wanted to check a couple of facts. Would I mind helping him? And I said, do you know something I don't know? <laughs> and uh, and I, so I helped him. But but what it did, it I, I read obituaries, almost, not clinically, but I read them as part of a kind of spiritual discipline. Because, uh, you know, I'm in the waiting room, and I like obituaries that actually give you a flavour of the lived life. And too many of them don't. They read like applications for a New Year's honour, a list of achievements. I don't want that. I want to know how they struggled with with religion and faith and how many times they were married and what it was like and, and all of that. And uh, you do get some of them that, that give a quality of the life. Uh, but So I, in a sense, I was kind of amused and grateful and realise that, my God, my number is getting to the head of the queue. Was it Alan Bennett who heard someone saying that they'd heard that there is a game some of these elderly celebrities pay, who's going to be the next one to go? And I think he heard his name coming up in that thing. Yeah, it was a slightly surreal experience, mildly flattering that I am going to have my 500 words before disappearing into oblivion. It was a funny one. Well, may the result of your victory be extremely flattering and may it not appear for a few years. <laughs> Richard Holloway, thank you very much. Thank you, very grateful. Thank you.